Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation about Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. So we are working through the seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of Paul's mission. And today we're going to look at the culture of generosity. In this chapter, you outline a way that pastors can nurture economic Christiformity, and you write, if Christ is Lord over all of life, if money and resources and possessions form one of the most important dimensions of life, and if pastors are called to nurture nurture Christiformity in all ways, then the pastor is called to nurture economic Christiformity. So, We're going to look at what Paul thought about generosity and how it was active in the life of the church, how Paul participated in this. And from those things, we're going to look at what this means for us. So one of the things just to start us off is that some scholars debate whether or not Paul cared about generosity as much as Jesus did, because Jesus talks about money a lot. And they're saying that Paul doesn't address it as directly um, as Jesus did. So I guess we can start there. And you look at two different books, one by Alistair Stewart and one by Bruce Longenecker. Um, And so Alistair Stewart's book is The Original Bishops. And he talks about how Paul asked the bishops to, to specifically administer economic care or to to oversee generosity in the life of the church. So let's start there. Tell me a little bit about Paul's view on this. Well, let's back up just to to what you said just before that. And that is that there are people who think that Paul has dropped the ball. There we go. That's poetic. This is a, (laughs) that's a Jesse Jackson line Um, that Paul uh, um, avoided this topic or somehow just completely failed to see the significance mm. of Jesus's vision of economic generosity, or at least economic distribution, you know, and sometimes people quote John the Baptist and call it Jesus, but uh, all the way back to Luke chapter three with John the Baptist, you know, what should we do? And it was, you know, if you've got extra, you should be giving it away. And Jesus said the same thing to the rich man. So a, a guy like Earl Ellis, who was a sort of a dean among evangelical scholars for quite a while, um, he basically said uh, Paul didn't have any vision for society at all. He just was a church guy. And, and I'm Anabaptist enough to say, yeah, the church ought to be the focus. So let's, let's, not, let's not get Paul or Jesus into some kind of... Uh, partisan political debate and say that they really were uh, trying to change all of society. Of course, in in some sense they were, but it started with the church. So um, Errol Ellis is kind of pushing against this, and um, it was really noticeable in Alistair Stewart's book, The Original Bishops, which I've had doctoral classes read, and and I have to tell you, it's a really difficult book to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, it could have, it 
could have used editors who said, uh, we got to work on this, making this clearer. Because I think it is actually a very profound book uh, mm. with a lot. He's erudite and puts a lot of stuff into it. But the choice of the word bishop, episkopos, for leaders in the church is the use of a term very commonly used in the Greco-Roman world, whenever Greek is being spoken, of course, um, for the economic steward of a community. Interesting. So it's sort of like it's sort of like using our word trustee. Yeah. Uh, rather than bishop, mm -hmm. um, but this would have been a person who was in charge of administrating financial disbursements and disper and distributions in a community. And then there is the uh, there is in the instruction for uh, bishops and also with elders that they um, they are to be good with money and manage the money, etc. So um, this this really puts a, a kink in Earl Ellis's little theory that uh, Paul didn't care about money. If the chief bishop of a church, let's call him a, you know, the chief overseer, is actually also the financial steward of the community and making sure that money is distributed well and carefully, hmm. sort of like the deacons, whatever you want to call them in Acts chapter six, then Paul clearly had economics at the heart of what he was doing. And then Bruce Longenecker comes along and his argument, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a good book, Remember the Poor. And I don't always agree with, Mar with, with Bruce Longenecker, but overall, I think he's totally right. And that is that Paul's language of doing good, mm -hmm. which he uses quite often. You know, I don't, I don't know how many passages uh, I cited, uh, but passages like Acts 20, 35, Romans 12, 13, and 16, Galatians 2, 10, 6, 9 to 10. I think Ephesians 4, 28 is a big one. 1 Thessalonians 5, etc. Paul is, is advocating... Um, generosity with one's funds when he talks about doing good. Doing good is not being nice. Um, let's just use one of my favorite people, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers is known for being nice. Mm -hmm. That's not what Paul means by doing good. Doing good is doing benevolent actions in the public sector for the, for the common good. So if Paul means this that often in his passages, then uh, the old line by Earl Ellis is inaccurate. And Paul had, let's say, an economic heart hmm. to his missional vision for the church in the Roman Empire. And once we catch on to this, I think, I think we realize that this is not a minor theme for Paul. This is a significant practice and habit of the early Christians. So one of the big concerns uh, with Paul in Galatians chapter 2 is that um, in preaching the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, that he would remember the poor. Right. And Paul uses a rather odd expression or tense usage, but it, it, the basic point is, oh yeah, we're going to take care of this, and we've always 
cared about this. So I think it I think it's it's a mistake to think that Paul dropped the economic vision. And I think this is a part that we could recover in the church. But this is the big point that Bruce Longenecker makes. Um, Bruce Longenecker's big point is that this was not just economic generosity for the sake of the assemblies for Christians, but it spread out into the community. Hmm. Now, by the by, the time he's done, he admits that they didn't have much money to give away anyway, so probably wasn't a whole lot given to the community. So I thought, okay, we're back to all. We're almost back to where Earl Ellis was now. But um, Longenecker, I think, makes the case clearly and strongly that there was a bigger vision of money for the sake of the common good than is given credit for in Paul. So yeah, that's the scholarship on the topic. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think you you got into this a little bit, but Galatians 2, 1 through 10, which is a meeting that Paul has with the, with the Jerusalem apostles early on in his ministry. Um, and they are officially sanctioning his ministry to the Gentiles. And they say, you know, just one caveat, we ask that you remember the poor. And he replies that he's very eager to do that. Um and then in the in this chapter on generosity, you cite several places of evidence where this is exactly what Paul is doing. Um, he's he's going to the churches that he's ministering to. He's taking up a collection for the saints. So I thought maybe if you could tell us a little bit about that, like how is this part of Paul's larger mission? Who is he collecting the funds from? And how did the gift givers understand what they were doing in this process of giving gifts? Yeah, in um, in Galatians two, if if you date Galatians when I do, I, I think it's the earliest letter in, of Paul's that is in the New Testament. He probably wrote letters before this, but um, uh, we we find that they want Paul to remember the poor. Now, who are the poor? Mm. Um, it is a consensus of New Testament scholarship that the poor are the poor believing Jews of Jerusalem. Mm. So it's the poor of Jerusalem. It's not just the poor in general, but of course it would apply an analogy uh, elsewhere. Well, then we find in 1 Corinthians, say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul advocates that they lay aside money so that when he comes, uh, they'll have a nice bounty of money that Paul is on a mission to collect money from Gentile churches or Gentile area churches mm -hmm. to take back with him to Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and the most exciting part of this, uh, if people would pay attention to this, is Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are like two solid chapters on how to deal with finances in churches if you want to be a generous person. Yeah. It's there's it's just one thing after another. And there are people who think these are two separate letters by Paul um, that are combined in the middle of 2 Corinthians. That is, he's got a letter from 1 to 7, and then he interrupts it with 8 and 9, and then that letter kind of resumes in 10 to 13, so that it could be as many as four letters in 2 Corinthians. This is, this is not at all... Um, uh, crazy making, mm -hmm. uh, although my teacher, who was a specialist in St. Corinthians, thought that all it takes is a a couple-week delay, and then all of a sudden you get fresh news, and 
and the letter tone can change. Yeah. And, and that's just as reasonable. I don't think we know for certain. But Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is very clearly a section on, on generosity and giving. And Paul pulls out every rhetorical trick he's ever learned, you know, even uh, sort of making you feel guilty, <laughs> making you feel competitive. You know, okay, is doing really well on this. How about you guys? I mean, you know. Uh, Corinth is doing real, you know, so he's appealing to the other churches. Mm. Uh, it's sort of like saying, you know, Dallas is doing really well on the giving. Chicago's not doing so. And, and the people in Chicago will be provoked by their pride and honor mm. mm -hmm. to contribute. So Paul pulls that out and he appeals to Jesus and he appeals to everything. You know, he appeals to the Old Testament. So he's he's using his, his armory of 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 argument. And I think this puts, this shows how Paul um, pleaded his case with, with other churches about giving. And um, there are criticisms of the apostle Paul. I, I often tell students read second Corinthians 10 to 13 and read it sensitively enough that you can say, now, if Paul is being criticized, what are they saying? Yeah. And you'll come up with way too many. You realize this guy got up on Sunday morning and he had been blasted at yeah. church. But the other side of this is if Galatians is written um, early in Paul's ministry and Galatians 2 reflects the earliest phases of Paul's ministry. And Paul is still talking about the collection when he writes Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Mm -hmm. And that means all the way till he gets to Jerusalem. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the, you know, probably 60s, this means that Paul has been out raising money for most of two decades. Yeah. Uh, or at least parts of two decades, 15 years or so. So Paul spent a lot of time trying to convince um, these churches to support uh, the, the uh, uh, collection for the saints. And I've, I've really looked at the words that Paul uses for the collection. He calls it a collection, which is sort of a, it's not just like taking an offering. It's a, it's a listing of what's going on. He calls it a gift. So he wants them to see it as something they're giving. Yeah. Giving as a grace, John Barclay will make it very clear, is yeah. going to bind the giver with the one receiving. So all of a sudden now there's a relationship that they're expressing with the uh, Jerusalem church. He calls it a blessing. Uh, um, this is eulogia, a good word. He calls it a liturgy, which, uh, you know, this this in Anglicanism and in liturgical churches is going to mean something that he doesn't mean. It's the work of the people. It's the efforts, let's just say, um, the public action of people for the good of others and common good. It's a, it's a service, which means it's done for the sake of others. And he calls it fellowship. So he uses different terms for this very act. And um, he, you got to be doing this a lot to be reflecting that many terms on what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really impressed with the significance of the collection of the Pauline ministry. And, of course, you're going to ask me why he did this. <laughs> and um, I think um, that I, I don't think we know for certain. Mm -hmm. um, but it expresses 
um, ecclesial unity between the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches. Right. He wants them to see this as something that brings glory to God rather than honor and praise to the giver, mm-hmm. which is non-Roman. And he wants them to see um, this as, as an act that demonstrates to the Jewish church that they are faithful to the tradition of Israel. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of pleading for acceptance of his mission right. by raising this money. Now, Laura, one of the most curious, one of the most interesting things about the collection, and every time I read this and talk about it in class, I get disappointed, and then I get to where I think I I don't really know. But when Paul gets to Jerusalem in the Book of Acts, mm-hmm. Luke doesn't tell us that he gave this money to everybody and everybody clapped their hands. Right. And so now we're at one. Right. Um, what we do see is that Paul paid for some people to go to the temple and take some, you know, do some religious actions. So we get, we got that, that maybe that's what the money, what happened with the money. But, but the other side of it is when Paul is in prison in Caesarea Maritima, these, uh, Jerusalem believers are not down there defending him so far as we can tell. Yeah. So there's tension between the Pauline mission and some of the um, tight guys in in Jerusalem on this Gentile mission of going out evangelizing and not requiring these Gentiles to affirm and practice the Torah. So now, I've really talked a long time. I normally don't talk this time. But uh, I'll see if you have any questions on it. But that's sort of a sketch. I like the one of the first things I ever wrote. Um, it was a long time ago. I wrote an article in the original dictionary of Paul and his letters on the collection mm-hmm. for the saints. Yeah. And about a year ago, Tom Wright emailed me a letter and asked me a question. I said, Tom, <laughs> I don't remember saying that. He said, well, it's in your article in the dictionary. I said, oh, my goodness, I haven't thought about that. This was um, this was quite a while. I guess it was about four years ago, before I wrote Pastor Paul. And um, I thought to myself, yeah, this was a long time ago, and I really enjoyed the study, mm-hmm. but I didn't teach Paul at Trinity or at North Park. So it was something that I worked on and then never got to continue mm-hmm. to, to develop. So it was really fun for me to return to this theme. And there's so many good things written on it today. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's anyway. I, I think one of my favorite parts about it is thinking Paul is being intentional here about reaching out to the churches, the Gentile, predominantly Gentile churches that he's established and asking them to care for the Jerusalem saints. And I think there's something really just sweet about that. And I think it is the hope or the goal of that would be to develop this sense of unity and to develop yeah. the sense of relationship. Um, because Paul is, you see him bridging these two worlds and trying to do everything he can um, to, to underscore that they all belong to Christ and to one another. So I think yeah. that, that generosity is a component of that shouldn't surprise yeah. us. But, you know, the, the thing is, um, as, as Gentiles, 
I'm assuming you're a Gentile. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm a Gentile. All right. As Gentiles, we take for granted the Gentile mission and its legitimacy mm-hmm. and its importance. And this is what God wanted. You know, this is this is yeah. the direction of the work of God in the world. But in the first century, this was a huge, huge issue. Yeah. And Paul, Paul, everywhere he went, Jewish believers contested his liberalism, as it were, his laxity on morality mm. because he didn't require these Gentile believers to follow the Torah. And there's precedent for relaxing. You know, there's uh, there's precedent for Jews relaxing Torah for Gentile converts. But by and large, Gentile converts became a part of the synagogue community and more or less practiced the Torah uh, in pretty consistent ways. Mm. And they didn't just have to practice the Ten Commandments, you know. They weren't running around eating pork and putting pork on the table when their Jewish believers were there. Mm. Um, so they had to learn to, to discipline themselves. And um, Paul just seems to have a looseness that is very difficult for Jewish believers. And the Jewish believers in Jerusalem were already in tight spots. Right. Because they believed Jesus was the Messiah and this guy was crucified, you know, and you're telling us he was raised and, and they're they're creating tension in families. You know how all conversions end up creating tension in families, early uh, tensions, and and um, so they're in trouble in Jerusalem with their own Jewish friends and family members. And Paul's just making things worse for them. Yeah. yeah. So Paul wants to demonstrate to them that he is a true Jew, mm. that he's following the the plan of God. And that it's okay for Gentile believers to just do the things that Gentiles should do, you know? <laughs> right. But that they're, they, Paul really, you know, his, his two basic moral stands for Gentile converts was about idolatry and sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. Those were the two things he was most focused on. Yeah. And um, so he, he's focusing on those things and they're saying, what about pork? You know, <laughs> what about marriage? Etc. So they're trying to push these converts, and and I think the way to look at it is, uh, they saw Paul's converts as God fearers, not yet converts, proselytes, right. and he wanted them. Uh, they wanted Paul's convert, Paul's God fearers, to become fully discipled, fully committed to Jesus, and that meant following the Torah. And Paul said, "Nope, they're not going to have to do that. That's not what we're doing." Right. And uh, so he his mission of raising money was sort of a political act of trying to get these people to recognize yeah. that uh, they have uh, they have that they should accept it, his mission. Yeah, so. that's good. And then there's the sociological thing. If they've been given a gift. Then they have an obligation. Right. And so so you can just make it like that. It's just sort of an obligation. Mm-hmm. On the part of the those recipients of the grace of God in Christ to owe something to the Jerusalem Church, the Mother Church. Yes. So, okay. We'll get into that because that's that's a good point. 
I think um, what I want to look at now is are some of the specific ways that Paul nurtured economic Christiformity um, and what current or contemporary pastors can learn from that. Because Paul sets us an example um, in the way that he practiced generosity that I think is really important for pastors today to think about how to implement. So you highlight five different areas and we can look at each of these a little bit, but the first is care for the poor um, that Paul is calling um, this, the Jewish or the Gentile Christians to care for the poor. He's setting them an example in this. And then the second is a wise use of money and resources that Paul himself worked. He was a laborer and um, and Paul writes to Christians and tells them to get to work, um, you know, not to be idle. Um, and then Paul talks about unity. And we've touched on that a little bit, unity between these different elements of the church and that um, generosity is a form of worship. And then finally, that it's a form of equality. So, um, Tell me what you'd like to talk about each of those different areas, um, yeah. starting with care for the poor. You know, in Ephesians 4.28, the Apostle Paul says uh, something like this, so as to have something to share with the needy. Paul cared about the poor. Yeah. Uh, it is probable that some people became a part of the church because they heard the good story that they would take care of some of their needs financially. Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of people, Laura, were living on the margins of uh, difficulties. Yeah. I mean, there was no welfare system for ordinary people in the Pauline churches. I mean, in Rome, you've got a lot of, a lot of food being given away to Roman citizens, mm -hmm. but to the poor, I mean, the basic thing was, if you don't take care of yourself, you die. Right. And the Jewish tradition of caring for the poor is picked up by the Christians, and it becomes fundamental to a way of life for the mm. Christians and for Jews to take care of the poor. And Paul continues this theme. So he was very much um, committed to the people who were poor. I believe that Christians... I had a professor in seminary who said Christians who don't, who are not generous toward the poor are not Christians. Mm. And it was just that. And he wasn't, he wasn't a prophetic type. who was always thundering away. He was very measured and careful, but it was very important to him financially that Christians expressed their Christian faith in themes of generosity. Mm. Mm. That's good. You know, when we get to wise economics, um, I sort of jumped in here mm -hmm. uh, that uh, uh, this this is a, a big issue for pastors. Mm -hmm. Pastors, when I talk to pastors about, about generosity, they say, you know, the bigger issue in my church is that people don't know how to manage their own money. Yeah. And they live at such an edge of their budget that they're always in debt and they're not managing themselves well. They're not disciplined. So I, I got to thinking about work and, and how it works in the United States. You know, that we're, we have a capitalist uh, arrangement and uh, 
There's a lot of people who don't like that, but that's the way it works right now. Mm -hmm. And it's going to work that way until it changes. And these things don't change overnight. And when they do, we're going to, they're going to really have a revolution in the United yeah. States. All right. So, so people have to uh, be wise about, uh, they have to have some ambition. Mm -hmm. They have to have some preparation, go to school. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they have to form a vocation. They want to have some transmission of this to the next generation. Um, we were talking about our neighbors and uh, they have three young adults, single, all in college now, are the the last one is going to be a freshman, and all three of them, all summer long, are home and working, working every bit that they can. Mm. And uh, Chris and I were talking this morning when we were walking that um, whatever they've done, they've convinced their children that it's their responsibility to put food on their own plate. <laughs> and so this this is sort of the way the American system works. Now. We have a lot of people who, for whom the system doesn't work mm -hmm. or it works too much for the privileged and not enough for others. Uh, the system still works that way. And it is Christian for those who are privileged to redistribute, as it were, their bounty mm. for the sake of other people. Yeah. That's the way Paul saw it. Yeah. The Corinthians had a lot the Jerusalem Christians didn't have enough. And Paul said, it's our obligation as Christians to make sure those Jerusalem Christians have what they need. Yeah. So, uh, but wise economics, I would say is, you know, I, I don't think you can ever replace and beat the line of John Wesley, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. In other words, work hard. Um, be disciplined with your wise with your money and be generous. Yeah. And that's I, I would say that's pretty close to the biblical vision mm -hmm. uh, that Paul casts for us when it comes to money. Yeah, that's really good. You touched on the unity theme a little bit already, and we talked about it as Paul is giving this gift to the Jerusalem saints and. Um, in part for this idea of creating a reciprocity. Um, like they're, yeah, they're, that's a good they're, word. Yeah, they're offering this blessing toward Jerusalem um, in part to underscore their unity in Christ, that they are one family. And it's this idea if one group has an abundance and they see another part of the body going in need, um, that this should come naturally. This desire to yeah. share and to bless others should come naturally as a way of saying we all belong to each other and, yeah. and we yeah. want to help each other. Well, Paul says to the Romans, uh, they were pleased to do this, and indeed they owe it to them. That's mm. a strong word. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material things. So Paul sees a material um, obligation on the part of Christians uh, for spiritual blessings. Mm -hmm. So a spiritual gift prompts a material response. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's I think that's pretty significant for the mm -hmm. Apostle Paul that uh, and it, it bonds together the believers, let's just say the Corinthians, 
give a big gift or a gift to the Jerusalem Christians. The Jerusalem Christians feel unified with the yeah. Corinthians and say, hey, they're one of us. And the Corinthians, you know, if they can avoid the sense of paternalism and patronizing mm -hmm. and, you know, that's just benevolence, if they can learn to look beyond that and see that this is their expression of their unity in Christ, then, then the money and generosity uh, can prompt unity in the church. Mm. I'm all for that. I think that's yeah. what was Paul, big for that's Paul. Good. That's good. Well, then another aspect is that of worship. And you hit on this a little bit when you talked about liturgy, but um, this idea that grace becomes an active power that turns into generosity. And it's, it's a, it's a worshipful response. Mm -hmm. that this is a way of expressing gratitude to God and thankfulness to God, while also uh, blessing others in turn. Yes, I mean, Paul Paul connects giving to the grace of God as a response to that grace. Paul connects generosity to doing something on the first Sunday of the week. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the original collection plate mm -hmm. in the context of gathering together and worshiping. Um, he connects it to uh, the word liturgy, which means it's it's connected. It's sort of a, a common people responding in benevolence for the good of other people. And it's connected, of course, to uh, worship and order. But especially in Romans chapter 15, Paul says these words, and these are words that come straight from, from temple worship. Mm. I have written to you rather boldly, he says, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister, a later God, we could call a liturgist of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service, mm. priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering, now this is the Greek word prosphora, and this is a word used for sacrifices in the temple as an offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, another word used uh, for sacrifices in the temple, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul sees, I mean, this is one of his last major statements mm -hmm. about his collection for the saints. And he's seeing it almost like temple ritual. It is an act of worship. And you know, pastors tell us all the time uh, that worship is not just so singing. It's also the way we live. It's the way we give our money. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, I'm really impressed with, with Paul's um, uh, temple making, religious sounding uh, worship language when it comes to giving. Yeah. And uh, I think pastors, therefore, need to avoid manipulating people with guilt and to prompt people to see this as the material response mm. to spiritual benefit and blessing. How's yeah. that? That's okay. really good. That's really helpful. Right. Well, and I, I don't remember where this was in the book, but I do remember you talking about um, the conversation you have with your doctoral students about whether or not they know about the giving in the church. So these are, yeah. pastors. you know, do they know, you know, how do they keep track of personally 
members of the congregation who are giving of their giving. And there's a lot of different opinions about this, about whether or not pastors should know. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe somebody else from the congregation was entrusted with that information. Um, and so go ahead and talk about that. But I, yeah. I the part I want you to talk about is um, Bill Scheel, the president yeah. of Northern coming in and offering his own insight into this. Yeah, Bill, we're, we're having a conversation in my class, and I don't exactly remember why we were talking about it. But I I asked, the, maybe because I was writing this chapter or studying it, I, I asked them if they knew what people gave and should pastors know mm-hmm. what people in their church give. And there were a lot of people, you know, there were immediately, no, I don't think we should know. It would impact what uh, how, I, how, how I would treat these people. Uh, I would give them special favor if they have a lot of money. It's going to lead to all kinds of problems. So Bill Shield walks in and he was just walking by and he came in and I, I asked him, I said, what do you think about this? Oh, he said, and this was, I, the whole class is just kind of stunned. He <laughs> said, oh, he said, I think money is one of the most important things that people uh, do and have. And I believe that uh, you can't disciple people if you don't disciple them in their money as well. So, I mean, it's not like he checked on what people were given weekly, but he talked to people that he was working with Mm -hmm. about their giving patterns because he felt like that was a a symbol of discipleship. It was a critical part of discipleship. Well, uh, you know, this... uh, this gets to um, the theme of equality. Mm. This is one of my favorite. Yeah. This is one of my favorite themes. I know we're running out of time here, yeah. but the Apostle Paul says in verses thirteen to fourteen, 14 fifteen mm. of Second Corinthians, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, saying to the Corinthians, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe, okay. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, this is, there's a couple debates here. What does does the word equality mean? Does that mean everybody has the same? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, in a sense, equity. Well, Paul is appealing to manna. That's the passage he appeals to from the Old Testament. And that was every family collected their fair share. So Mm -hmm. if you had five kids, you collected enough for five. And no more. If you took more, it rotted. Okay? But at the same time, there is this, uh, in Pauline theology, this material for spiritual. So Mm -hmm. maybe he means the Corinthians uh, give material, and then the Jerusalem will give them more spiritual benefit. But... My suspicion, uh, I think, Paul, what Paul means is, for right now, you have excess. You can be generous with the Jerusalem Christians, and someday they're going to have excess, and you can be generous with them, mm-hmm. or they can be generous with you. And I think that's what Paul means by equality. What he means is, is that we have a mutual obligation and accountability for one another, mm. and we use our resources for the good of others, and they will use it for us, and we will unleash a cycle of generosity in the church where we're caring for one another, 
when others need it. So that's what Paul is trying to create, mm. a culture of generosity that is prompted by people learning the habits of generosity. Mm -hmm. It's quite a vision. And yeah. it, this is not the manipulation of hanging on to people for 30, 30 extra minutes on some service so that they can collect more money. Mm -hmm. This is the vision of someone who wants a culture where people, when they see someone in need, respond. Mm -hmm. It will spill out into the community and begin to impact social uh, progress. And it will um, impact laws in society where we want to care for one. I believe, you know, in healthcare, and I think it should be for all, but this is the extension of the Christian principle of generosity. Wow. So I'm I'm entirely in favor of this. So all right, I've I've talked. No, that's good. I I think as we were talking about um, Bill Shields' comment, I one of the things I was thinking is just it's almost the way that the people in our churches treat money, how we treat money, how we think about it, is sort of a barometer or a test of our faith. Um, it's a good indicator. You know, yes, it, yeah. it doesn't tell us everything, but it, it is a good indicator on um, maturity and at any given moment where we are. And I think that element of generosity, when we are moved by the needs of others, we want to exercise that muscle. We want to exercise yeah. that practice so that it comes naturally, because as humans, we're so turned inward that that we're we're not going to naturally do that um, unless it's a practice, unless it's something that we are being intentional about. And I think that's what Paul is trying to model yep, in this collection definitely. idea that he's trying to say, this is what it looks like and hoping that that will catch on. So that that's, I think for pastors today to think, how do we model that? Um, how do we encourage that without being um, overly braggadocious? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, and brag about ourselves or push. You know, it, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, and that is how could Paul have a bishop who wasn't generous and making sure the community was generous? Mm. That, that would be inconsistent with everything Paul's doing. And I love so, that idea that, like, the highest level leader leads the way on generosity. I think that's yep. a great vision. Yep. Well, today we talked about the culture of generosity, and I want to let our listeners know that um, we are going to take a pause in our series about Pastor Paul for a couple of episodes to talk with some special guests that I think you're going to want to hear. And then we'll pick back up after those are done uh, with the final four cultures that nurture this deformity. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 